0: Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you. I encourage you to open it and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. There are units of chapters, as you well recognize, through the books of the Bible. By units of chapters, I'm talking about things that lock together in a section And it seems that a new thought begins in chapter 5, and chapters 1 through 4 would be a unit of chapters, at least in my mind. There were problems at Corinth. In fact, there were many problems at Corinth, as you recall. And if you've already turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 11, which suggests there were many problems. The apostle Paul writes saying that he had heard from the house of Chloe that there are contentions among you. That's just the beginning of the list of problems, and we will not take the time to go through all the list of problems. But practically every chapter, beginning in chapter 5, presents a new problem uh, of division and friction and confrontation going on at Corinth. That was due in part to a misunderstanding of the preachers and their message. Look at verse 12. The very next verse, after there are contentions among you, some were saying, I'm of Paul, and others saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And others saying, oh, no, I'm not of Paul or Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And others were saying, I'm of Christ. And so they were following after various and sundry preachers. It seems that they were treating these gospel as if it were another philosophy. It seems that they were treating preachers and in this case the apostles, like modern philosophers. How did that work? Well, a philosopher would come to a region and he, pro- he proclaims his philosophy and people rally around him and, and think, I like what he says. I like what, I like what he, I believe that. I'm, I'm his follower. Until a new philosopher comes along that has a little different ring to that. you know what, I believe I'm his follower instead. Maybe not a good parallel, but it may be somewhat like during the primary season when you're watching what's going on in your party and you have these 10 or 15 candidates that are running and you say, I believe I'm, I'm, I'm his supporter. No, 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 wait a minute. I think I like what she's saying. I'll be her supporter. And you begin to change from one to the other based on what they're saying. Well, that's how they treated preachers and that's how they treated philosophers. And they're treating the gospel as just like a philosophy of man. But look at verse 18, same chapter. The gospel was not a philosophy. It was not just someone's personal opinion. But it was God's power to save. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God So, because of that, it's important that we understand three things that we're going to learn from these four chapters. From chapter one, we're going to learn the kind of person that accepts the gospel. Who is it that is really interested in the gospel? Everybody's not. So, who is it that's really interested in the gospel? The recipient of the gospel. Chapter 2 is going to focus on the message of the gospel. What is the content of that gospel? And then thirdly, chapters 3 and 4 go together to tell us the role of the messenger. So here is the recipient of the gospel, here is the gospel itself, and then here is the messenger of the gospel. Those three things we want to consider in our study this morning. So let's talk about the gospel and how it works. How does the gospel work? And what is the gospel? What's the nature of the gospel? Who's interested in the gospel? And why are those who are not interested, not interested in the gospel? Well, this will well fit with our theme that we're trying to follow this year of reaching out to others with the gospel. We need to know more about the gospel. Who's going to receive it? Who's going to reject it? What is that gospel we're trying to share with others? And then what is our role as messengers of that? What kind of role do we play? The gospel and how it works. Let's begin with this. Let's talk about the nature of the recipient. This is chapter 1. So if you don't already have a Bible open, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not going to have time to go through every verse of chapter 1. That's not our intent here. But let me give you a quick summary of chapter 1, and then we're going to go back and learn some things from chapter 1. Here's a quick summary. In the first nine verses is an introduction where Paul is is writing to the church, which is at Corinth, and greetings, and thanksgiving, etc. Now beginning at verse 10, he talks about division. There are divisions among you. The real thing, flow of thought for our study begins at verse 18. So what does he say beginning at verse 18? He contrasts the wisdom of men with the wisdom of God. Philosophies of men versus the gospel. And he talks about that difference. We'll come back to that. Beginning at verse 26, here's the nature of the person who receives it. For example, he says this at verse 26, not many wise, not many uh, mighty, not many noble are called. Not many of those listen to the gospel. So, who is it that does listen to the gospel? That's what he talks about. So, chapter one is focusing on the recipient, the nature of the recipient of the gospel. So, here's what I learned from chapter one. I learned that some people reject the gospel. That ought to be quite obvious. We we preach the gospel, and and we preach it to a thousand people, and not hardly a thousand will respond. Uh, not a, hardly a thousand would believe it. So obviously people reject the gospel. And that's implied here in this chapter. So who is it that rejects the gospel? Let's begin at verse 18 now in our chapter. First Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 18. Some of those who reject the gospel, those who use human reasoning, reject the gospel. That is, those who take what they hear and they process it through human reasoning and when they take the gospel and run it through that process of human reasoning, they reject it as per this text is foolishness. Let's look at verse 18. For the message of the cross, that's the gospel of Christ, is foolishness to you are perishing. They hear the gospel message, they hear what was preached like in Acts chapter 2, and they reject it and say that's a bunch of foolishness. Look later at verse 21, we see that same rejection. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. Now God is not saying the message is foolish. He's talking about how it's viewed by man and it is viewed as foolish. Let's go further. Look at verse 23, same context. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. They view it as scandalous. And to the Greeks foolishness. They reject it as just a foolish message. So those who use human reasoning reject the gospel and they view it as foolishness. Now you get the picture of this. The cross stood for and was used for execution of a criminal. Used by the Egyptians, used by the Romans, the Phoenicians and others. And it stood for failure. It stood for shame. It stood for weakness and stood for foolishness. And as much as we would think of, of the electric chair in our day and time, or the gas chamber, whatever it may be, where where someone who is executed for their crime, it stands for shame, it stands for failure. So the one who is executed has failed. They're they're shameful, they're a criminal, they've done wrong, they are weak, they are foolish. And someone comes along preaching a message and said, there was one Jesus of Nazareth who was put on the cross and he died this kind of death and he is your savior. Well, to the world who processed that through human reasoning... That's foolish to think a man who died that kind of death is our Savior. We have a different picture of the Messiah than that. And so they view it as foolishness. Let's go further. Some reject the gospel. And who is it that rejects the gospel? Well, there are some smart people of the day that reject the gospel. Let's see that at verse 19. What do I mean by the smart people of the day? People who in the eyes of the world, not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of the world, they're viewed as the smart people, the intelligent people, those who have superior knowledge to everyone else. Notice what he says at verse 19. He is quoting from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What the world considers as wisdom and extols it as the wise thought. This is what men think is the best uh, of the concepts that they could uh, create uh, that's foolishness in the eyes of God go further to verse 20 where is the wise and where is the scribe and where is the disputer of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world that is what man holds as wise and as the, the greatest of wisdom God said, I consider that nothing but foolishness. Go to verse 22. He said, for the Jews request a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. They want what's wise and what's understanding. Well, we see that even in our own day. How the world holds up those who hold to the idea of evolution as being the wisdom of the day. And if you believe in creation, then certainly you're unwise, you're unlearned. You don't know anything if you, if you believe in creation. And so they reject the wisdom of God by holding to the wisdom of man. Some reject the gospel because they're blind. Who is it that rejects the gospel? Those who are blinded to the truth. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 and 23. The Jews seek a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Into the Jews a stumbling block. They're blinded, they don't see it, and they stumble right over the top of that. They're blinded to that. Why are they blinded? Well, some, maybe they have been blinded by someone else in some cases. Others are blind because they don't want to see, and consequently they reject the message. But furthermore, those in high position, verse 26. Now we get to more the heart of what chapter 1 is about when we get to verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What does it mean by that? Is he saying the gospel is not for those who are high and those who are wise and those who are mighty and those in power and uh, those with a great degree of education? No, not at all. What he's saying is not many of those people accept the gospel. I'm always fascinated when, when, when somebody, as I travel in meetings, will identify some well-known celebrity and say, did you know they're a member of the church? Or some big business person who owns maybe a big chain of of stores. Did you know I baptized him? One preacher told me one time. No, I didn't know you baptized that fellow. A well-recognized man. I'm fascinated with people in high position. Or maybe someone who is a leader. Very few leaders in our country have been obedient to the gospel. We've only had one president that I know of that was supposed to be a member of the church. And so not many in high position... Not many of those who are mighty, not many of those who are highly educated, not many of those who are noble or wise according to the flesh are interested in the gospel. So who is it that's not interested? Well, it's rejected by those who use human reasoning, some of the smart people, some who are blind, and some of those who are in high position. Same chapter now, let's talk about those who do receive the gospel. Look at verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. The one who accepts the gospel believes. But let's talk about that. Let's look at verse 21. For since in the the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, here's our word, believe. Now in light of other passages, and even in light of chapter 2, that doesn't mean they're gullible and they just swallow whatever is told to them. They, They take a new philosophy and they just swallow that. They believe in the sense that they accept the evidence and suggest their honesty. They're willing to look at the evidence. that This Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he's your savior. It fulfills Old Testament prophecy. You take Acts chapter 2. Peter didn't just preach Jesus was raised from the dead, but he gave evidence. He talked about the empty tomb. He talked about fulfilled prophecy. He talked about eyewitnesses. So he presented abundant evidence to support his claim. So the one who accepts the gospel is one who accepts the evidence because they're honest enough to examine the evidence and accept the evidence that is presented and therefore they believe. Second, quality. Look at verse 28. They're humble. Now here's one reason perhaps that verse 26 says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many of those who we may consider in the world of high rank are interested in the gospel. But verse 28 suggests something of humility. And the base things of the world, the things that are insignificant or lonely, your footnote will say, which are despised, God has chosen. In other words, God chooses and uses things that are not like what those that are mighty and those that are noble and those who are of high rank are interested in. And so here is a picture of humility. They're interested in things that are not of high rank. Now, that reminds me of Mark 12 and verse 37. When Jesus went out preaching the gospel, the text says the common people heard him gladly. It wasn't the wise people who were interested in, in the latest philosophy. It wasn't the great wisdom of the world, but it was those who were just common people. Suggest again something of humility. Humility. Now, starting at verse 28, we're not going to read 18 to 25, but let's go back and just get a summary of what's going on in 18 to 25, and then we'll draw some conclusions. What's going on in 18 to 25? He contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Philosophies of men with the gospel, they are different, he suggests. And he talks about how the gospel is viewed as foolishness, and it's viewed as something that ought to be rejected, but the wisdom of men is extolled. So here's what I learned from that. I learned from that that those who receive the gospel don't mind being different. And those interested in the gospel don't mind being in the minority. And those interested in the gospel don't mind being ridiculed. Like you believe that silly, foolish concept that a man who died on a tree is going to be your savior? (laughs) Do you really believe that? Well, that may not be so ridiculed in your society, but it would have been in the society in which Paul is writing at Corinth. Greatly ridiculed. Those who accept the gospel don't mind being different from everybody else. And they don't mind being in the minority. Now, if, if I'm one who's, I don't want to be different from the world, I kind of stick my to the wind see which way it's blowing and And I don't want to go against the popular thought. The major thought goes in this direction. That's kind of where I want to go because I want to fit in. I'm not going to be interested in the gospel. It's not going to be attractive to me. So what does chapter 1 tell me? The nature of the recipient. Some people reject the gospel. We see why. Who is it that receives it? And we see why in chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2 now. This focuses on the nature of the message. I know the nature of the recipient of the message, what about the nature of the message itself? Again, it's com- seemingly in the context, it's being treated as if it's nothing but a philosophy, a new philosophy. It's different than what the other philosophers. And so some would rally after them. But I kind of like what Paul's flavor on that. No, no, I like Apollos' flavor on that. Well, they weren't teaching different doctrines. So what is the nature of the message? Let's go to chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's not about man about Christ 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 and brethren when I came to you I did not come in excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God I didn't come to you with the attraction of human wisdom in other words some of the philosophers would would dazzle people with their rhetoric because of their great wisdom and you just stand in awe of his wisdom man I think I want to be his follower He said, I didn't come with some kind of excellency of speech where you were impressed with me. That wasn't what I did. What would you do, Paul? Look at verse 2. I only preached Christ and him crucified, for I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verses 3 and 4. I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling. I didn't look like a philosopher. I didn't try to be a philosopher. I didn't try to impress you with myself. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now we'll come back to verse 5 in a moment. Here's what I'm learning from that. All too often the messenger tells us more about himself than he does about Christ. When you have someone stands in the pulpit and we're more fascinated with his stories about himself and what he's done, and, and he is more interested in telling us about himself than about Christ, he's not focusing on the message of the cross. I'm reminded when the Greeks came to Philip, remember when they were looking for Jesus, when, when that triumphal entry had just taken place in Jerusalem, and they came looking for Jesus, they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I know they weren't asking about the gospel message. They physically want to see it. But here's the point. Every preacher and every teacher and every Bible student as teaching someone else, that includes you as you talk about the gospel to your neighbor. Remember the plea is, Sir, we would see Jesus don't need to see about us they don't need to know about us they need to know about Jesus that's the gospel message now let's go to verse 5 we're still talking about the nature of the message it's designed to produce faith look at verse 5 Paul said when I came to you I didn't come impressing you with myself that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God you see the nature of the message was it's to produce faith well that's where faith comes from true faith comes from the word faith comes by hearing hearing by the word Romans ten seventeen. The message is what needs to be preached. The message is the Word. Preach the Word. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. We preach the Word because it's the power of God to save, Romans 1 and in verse 16. But let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 5. Now this is quite interesting to me because talking about the same thing as the gospel, but he calls it doctrine here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he talks about the purpose of the doctrine. And so, Timothy, you're a preacher. You're, that's what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians. You're a preacher. You're going forth to preach. Here is the purpose of that message or the doctrine that you're preaching. He summarizes it in three points at verse 5. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Do You see the three points? What's the purpose, Paul uh, uh, Timothy may ask, what, what's the purpose for me preaching this message I'm supposed to be preaching? For people to love God, live right, that's the good conscience, and have real faith. And so why are you talking to your neighbor about the gospel so they have real faith? Not that they believe in you. Not that they believe in the Old Bethel Church. My purpose in preaching is not that they might be impressed with Donnie Rader. I want them to be impressed with the gospel and have real faith. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 2. Now let's begin in verse 9. We're still talking about the nature of the message. It's not about man. It's about Christ. It's designed to produce real faith. And furthermore, it's an inspired message beginning at verse 9. So let's start at verse 9 and read. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 9, he said, I has not seen nor ear heard nor entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. You've. I've said many times that I hear this often quoted in the context of a funeral that we, we haven't seen the unseen, we haven't seen heaven. Eyes not seen or heard. And so we just long to see and hear and understand the things of heaven. It's not even talking about heaven. It's talking about things that were in the mind of God and until God revealed them we didn't know what they were. How do you know that's what it's talking about? Look at verse 10. But God has revealed him to us through His spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now he illustrates that. No one knows the mind of man except the the spirit of man that's in him. What does he mean by that? He's saying no one knows what's on your mind until you reveal that to him. You may reveal that in a number of ways with words or it may be your actions, but you reveal what's on your mind. But until you reveal that, no one can read your mind. No one knows what's on your mind. So likewise, at the end of verse 11, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us by God. Now, we'll come back to verse 13 in just a moment. What's he talking about? He's talking about inspiration. All Scripture is inspired of God, given by the breath of God, 2 Timothy 3 and in verse 16. But beginning at verse 9, where we've just read, the mind of God has been revealed. That which was in the mind of God has now been revealed. It's in the context. Our message didn't come from man. We're not preaching a message from man. We're preaching a message we got from God. It came from the mind of God and was revealed to man. So we're not writing of our own minds. We got this from the mind of God. Where'd How did you get it from the mind of God? Through the Holy Spirit. It's an affirmation of inspiration. What I want you to notice at verse 13. The very words are from God. Look at verse 13. This is an affirmation of verbal inspiration. These things we also speak. What things are we speaking? The things which came from the mind of God and has been revealed, he said. We're speaking these things. When Paul goes out to preach, he's speaking things that came from the Holy Spirit, from the mind of God. Which not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now follow this. The things that we speak are not in words. That's a vehicle of thought. Where'd you get your words that you're using, Paul? Well, we didn't get it from the wisdom of man, but we got it from the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit guided not only their thoughts, follow this carefully, but the very words, verbal inspiration. I'm convinced a number of brethren don't believe in verbal inspiration. How do I know that? Well, when you take a text... And you say, the writer didn't really mean what he said here. He he, 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 he's, he missed the point. He overstated the case. He, he, he th- Saying what he thought to be right, but really that wasn't what happened. Then we don't believe in verbal inspiration. Here's the message that's being preached. The message being preached is that which came from the words that were chosen by the Holy Spirit. That's verbal inspiration. All right, now I know the nature of the recipient. I know the nature of the message. Let's talk about the nature of the messenger. And so we couple two chapters together because both chapters deal with that point, chapters 3 and 4. So let's start in chapter 3. We'll kind of give a summary of that as we go along because I'm using more sections of these chapters than I did the previous two. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. The messenger is not to be followed. Now, remember the problem at Corinth? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They're following after men. So let's start with verse uh, 1. He said, uh, I could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but unto carnal as, as unto babes. Drop down to verse 3. For you're still carnal. What, what makes you say, Paul, they're carnal, meaning they're not sp- fully spiritually minded? Well, there's envy and there's strife and divisions among you. For, verse 11, verse 4 You're saying I'm a Paul and nothing says I'm a Paulist. You're carnal. What's his point? His point is men are not to be followed. Now men are to be followed only as they follow Christ. Paul said be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. You follow my example only as I'm doing what's right. But I'm not the example. Christ ultimately is the example. So these are followers and disciples of Christ. We are to be followers and disciples of Christ. Not followers and disciples of men. We're to put our trust and our confidence in Christ, not our trust and our confidence in men. Well, if this were a Bible class, I would make that point, and several would might say, I agree with that, and even speak up and say, I think that's right. We don't need to follow and trust after men. Someone else would say, well, I think what we need to emphasize is we need not follow men. All right, good point. We all agree. But when push comes to shove, and here's some issue at hand, maybe it's divorce and remarriage, Maybe it's another issue that comes along, but let's illustrate with divorce and remarriage. When that issue comes along, Brother So and so says, this is, this is the right thing, and I have my confidence that he knows what he's talking about. You just put your confidence and your trust in man, or any other issue for that matter. They're not to be followed. What are they then? Look in verse 5 of chapter 3. All the messenger is, is a minister. And a worker. Look at verse 5. Who is Paul and Apollos, but you might underline in your Bible ministers, that means servants, through whom you believed? Just a minister by whom the message was delivered. Just a messenger boy. James P. Miller used to say, I'm just a messenger boy for Jesus, is all I am. Pretty good point. Look at verses 6 to 8. A worker is nothing, but it's God who gives the increase. He says, I planted in Apollos water, but God gave the increase. We're all, uh, all we are is like farmers, and, and one plants, and another one comes behind and, and waters. But where's the credit to be given the one in, not the one who waters, but the God who gives the increase? Look at verse 7, for neither is the one who plants anything, nor who, nor who waters, but God who gives the increase. It is ministers. Beginning at verse 9, The worker is not important, but the foundation is. For we are God's fellow, you might underline the word workers. And in my Bible, I've taken a a line and drawn from ministers that we just underlined before and workers here. That's what he means by ministers. We're workers, we're servants. So what is a preacher of the gospel? He's a minister and he's a servant. He's a worker. As you carry the gospel to someone else, all you are is a minister, you're a worker. You're not uh, to be be followed as this great leader. I'm not to be followed as this great leader. Let's go further. Just mere workers in God's field, the farming illustration, and you are God's building, construction illustration. According to the grace that God has given to me, the wise master builder, God is the master builder, He said, I've laid the foundation and no other builds on it, and let each one take how he builds. Now, notice verse 11, for no other foundation can can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here's the point. The worker is not as important as the foundation. Now, think about building your house. And you want your house to be built, would you focus, I don't really care about the foundation. I want to know who's the person laying. I was impressed with this man. He's got a good sense of humor. I like the way he communicates. I just, he's just one of the, my, my favorite people. I want him to lay my foundation. You say, well, he doesn't lay a good foundation. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm not really concerned about the foundation. I just, I'm focusing on who did it. How foolish. Most of you probably don't even know who laid the foundation to your house. And the one you think may have just subbed that out to someone else. That doesn't really matter who laid the foundation. The, the real point is: do you have a good, solid foundation? That's what's important. Well, same thing in building a spiritual house. What's important is the foundation that is laid. Well, who laid it? I don't really care who laid it. So who taught you the gospel? Well, it really doesn't matter who taught you the gospel. What did they teach you? Did they lay the foundation? That's the point he's making. And so the worker is not important. The foundation is. Now let's go to chapter 4. That's chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 4. Now there's more in chapter 3, but that's all we're going to see at this juncture. Let's go to chapter 4 now and talk about how the ministers are stewards. Notice what he says. Let every man consider us as servants of Christ. Now, here's another word you might understand servants, ministers, workers. We just talked about. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So the apostles were stewards. We are stewards in a sense, not in the same sense that they were, fully, obviously. We're not inspired. We're not delivering the message as they did. But the point is we're stewards of the message. What does that mean? Well, we are responsible to handle the word of God properly. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15, hey, uh, rightly dividing, rightly or handling aright the word of truth. That's not talking about just dividing it between the Old and New Testament properly, but handling it properly. That's a good steward. If I give you money to handle for me, you want to handle it properly because it's not your money. Well, this is not your gospel. This is God's revelation, and you handle it properly. Don't mishandle that. We're responsible to do that. Now, the message did not originate with them, so they give credit to God for the wonders of the word, not with the, the flowery speech that he's able to deliver, not in the magnificent way you can tell it to your neighbor. That's not what's important. What's important is it did not originate with you. Give credit to God for the message. You are a steward. I'm a steward. Now, let's go to chapter four beginning at verse three. This is an important point, sometimes hard to learn, that we're accountable to God and not to men. Verse three, chapter four, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. What's he saying? I really don't care what people think. (laughs) That's what he's really saying. I really don't care what your opinion about what I preach is. And if the whole human court and they judge me as being unworthy and say, he's preaching a bunch of stuff we don't don't agree, so be it. I don't care. That's what he's saying. I really don't care. Now look at verse verse 4. For I do not know anything against myself, yet if I am justified by this but he who judges me is the Lord. What's he saying? I'm not going to stand before men in the day of judgment. I'm going to stand before the Lord in the day of judgment. Now verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before its time until the Lord comes, who will bring the light, uh, to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, that each one may have praise, uh, the praise will come from God. Here's what I'm learning from that. not out to please men Paul said in Galatians 1 if I sought to please men I wouldn't be a servant of Christ if that is my goal I'm just trying to please men what do you want to hear what do you want want me to give you I'll give you that message Uh, we wouldn't be servants of Christ man may tell us where we can preach the gospel but only God tells us what to preach what do I mean by that well there may be churches that say you can't preach for us anymore okay But if the message is coming from from the Bible, then man's not gonna tell me what to preach. Man should not tell you what to preach. They may tell you, you can't teach in my house anymore. You're not gonna teach the gospel here anymore. But they should not tell you what to preach. And what I'm learning from that, it's a hard lesson to learn, that the messenger doesn't give an account to anyone but God. You serve no one but your Lord. It's a hard lesson to learn. When I was in my 20s, I suddenly hit a wall I never thought I would hit. I was preaching and teaching and dealing with some issues and suddenly hit a wall of opposition from brethren. And I was ready to throw up my hands and quit until an older brother reminded me, which I already knew, but he just put it in my head. You just remember you don't serve anybody but the Lord. You're a servant not of men. You're not a servant of the church. You're not a servant of the brethren. You're a servant of the Lord. Preach the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. And so bid. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 6 now. Here's the nature of the messenger. He's not above what is written. He's not above what's written. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul said, these things I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Paulus, for your sake that you may learn not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Don't think of men above what which is written. Don't think of Apollos above what's been revealed of God. Don't think of Cephas above what's been written of God. Don't think of Paul above what's written of God. You see, men can be and often are wrong. It's a simple point. So you say, well, I like what Brother So-and-so says. I always like his lessons. I like the way he presents them and And I just, I I would listen to anything he has to say. No, don't put them above the word. You see, what is written is the absolute standard. Our confidence should be in the written message and not in the messenger. And make sure that messenger points to the message so that you can see the message of God. Well, that's the nature of the messenger. He's not to be followed They're ministers, they're stewards. They're accountable to God and not to man and not to be above that which is written. That's a summary of chapters one to four. The gospel and how it works. And I wanted you to see chapters one through four as they lace together, not just chapter one by itself and then chapter two by itself and then chapter three by itself and four. Notice how they lace together as a unit of chapters. Make a marvelous point. Here's the nature of the recipient. Here's the nature of the message. Here's the nature of the messenger. And so what's the message like? Well, I go to chapter 2. What's the recipient like? Well, that's chapter 1. What's the messenger like? That's chapters 3 and 4. What a marvelous lacing together of those chapters as the Apostle Paul has so well done for us. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?